Hello, people of the world, and welcome to today's episode of the Unity Project podcast. If you are tuning in for the first time, the Unity Project is a podcast about the relationships that we have with our bodies. Wow, I had so much fun on today's episode. I got to interview Rachel Ward. Rachel Ward is an incredible human being. They care deeply about the intersectional work through space creation, focusing on how to be human with oneself, others, and in partnership with the divine's intimate and vast possibility for our lives. They work individually and in group settings with LGBTQ plus siblings in need of transformative spiritual care. Rachel deeply believes pastoral care is embodied through the mind, body, and spirit of our God-given uniqueness, kinship to one another, and call to be faithful neighbors who love deeply. Rachel had so much to say, and I just took it all in so much. I learned a ton. We talked a lot about embodiment, about disembodiment, about spirituality, internalized homophobia, gender roles in the marriage, in queer marriages, and straight marriages, and all the things. We talked about what it means to be queer or label yourself or not label yourself as anything and everything. And oh my gosh, there was so much that we talked about that I absolutely loved. I'm probably going to go back and re-listen to this to learn more again. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy, and also go check out Rachel's work at the end of this podcast. I put all those links below, but there's a lot of really cool stuff in the works in Rachel's world, so go check it out. But for now, enjoy the podcast. Hey guys, really quick before this episode starts, I'm so excited to introduce to you one of our first sponsors for the Unity Project podcast. If you are a close personal friend of mine or anyone that knows me slash I know you on the internet, then you'll know I am super into CBD. I am all about the different benefits of it from helping with anxiety to helping relieve pain to just reducing stress to just being a really incredibly helpful part of taking care of my mental health. So I'm so stoked to be partnering with this company called Humbled Healing Hemp Products. I found this company on Instagram and was super excited about just the concept of a CBD company focusing on healing. I was lucky enough to get to try out their four different healing balms. One has a peppermint flavor scent to it, the other one has a lavender scent, one has a clove, and the last is fragrance-free, which is incredible if you're allergic to any of the above. But they help anything from joint pain to headaches to muscle soreness to pulling muscles well to help the pulling muscles it doesn't make you pull your muscle but these bones are incredible i love rubbing them on my shoulders when i get really tight muscles it's super relaxing and definitely something i would recommend if you are into cbd so yeah go check out their website humbledhealing.com or just go check out their instagram humbledhealing all that is going to be in the info box below anyway enjoy the podcast Rachel, how's it going over there? Oh my gosh, it's so good. It's been so long since we've spoken last. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me on today. 
Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, Rachel. For those of you listening, I have never met Rachel in person, but we have connected via the internet as so many people connect these days because, you know, 2021, I almost said 2020, but who is not saying it right now? We're like in the liminal space, you know, we haven't fully transitioned. Absolutely. We don't know what's happening next. We are scared just a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, we are. Oh my goodness. But Rachel, do you want to give a quick little like introduction? Introduction of kind of who you are, what you do, so people listening can know more, because you do so many cool things. Oh my gosh, I know. It's like, can, <laughs> can you just, like, the Star Wars credit rolls, and there's, like, a cool picture of me, and, oh, like, yeah. you can see that on someone's feet. <laughs> we can try. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. Oh to my be, gosh. To be decided later. Oh, to, <laughs> to be, be figured out. Later. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, my name is Rachel. Um, my pronouns are they, them, just for anyone who may engage with me post in the world. Um, and I am, first and foremost, uh, I would say a pastoral care-centered person who is predominantly interested in um, honest storytelling that helps liberate people all people. Um, I'm a communal human being. I like to bridge bridge gaps, bring people together. Uh, so I do a lot, like Jackie just mentioned. Um, I have a podcast um, called How to Be Human. I co-founded a collective that's called Bible Query. We work with queer people at all intersections of grief, um, becoming and desiring to know who they are in more depth. Um, and I'm a seminarian who's boldly trying to get two master's degrees at the same time. I work at a church, uh, ministering to kids, and um, I work a lot in death, dying, and grief with um, a queer lens. And I'm married to my loving wife, Chelsea. Uh, I like to mention her as much as possible because I think queer relationship representation matters. So just so you know, I'm a married human being. Absolutely. Um, I have a dog. A German Shepherd named Jack and a really rather large round tabby named Frances. <laughs> she allowed me to say that. Um, she's beautiful the way she oh, is. Yeah. Um, I and can imagine. Yeah, I live in Atlanta. Okay, um, and also your favorite color is blue. And my favorite color is blue. We covered that before yeah. you told me that you read everything I've ever written. And Absolutely. I can't wait to see where we go with that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, the deepest thing we'll talk about today is Rachel's favorite color being blue. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> thank you so much for that introduction. I was going to try, but I'm like, I don't think I'll be able to do them justice as much <laughs> as they will, so I'm just going to let them roll with it. But so cool. So, so cool. For those listening, I, as Rachel said, kind of just deep dove into their work. I was looking all over their website and reading blogs and this proposal about a living death doula, which I had no idea what that was. Now I kind of do, but we're going to learn together because it sounds super awesome. But anyway, so tell me, Rachel, the question that I ask everybody to start off these podcasts, and then we'll see where it goes from there, is to describe the relationship that you have with your body, and then to tell me about a time when you felt like you were the most disconnected from your body that you can recall. Oh, light work. Um. Yeah, super light, <laughs> easy breezy color type stuff. <laughs> yes, blue was, that was the easiest part. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I, yeah, this is like a tragic response. (laughs) I would think that um, I've probably historically 
always been somewhat disconnected from my body until recently. Um, mm-hmm. I think that um, I, you know, I gave you my pronouns to say them, so I'm non-binary. So in the last two years, there's been a lot of development around who I am in my body. Um, but in a larger sense, like even like being accustomed to like where things hurt in my body, where I feel good in my body, um, having love for my body, respect for my body. Um, I think um, (laughs) culturally and in our society, we're kind of taught to separate or mirror the images that we have for us. Mm -hmm. Um, And as a queer person, I think there's a particular lens of um, disassociation from our body um, because we're busy dealing with like, you know, the cognitive mental of like, am I gay? Can I be gay? Um, And from a religious perspective, um, if you're raised evangelical, like I was, I'm raising my hand like somebody can see me right now. <laughs> me. Um, using our imaginations. Yeah, use your imaginations. It was my left hand, and I was putting up the peace sign because that's oh, who nice. I am. There um, you go. I were kind of taught, or at least I was taught, um, to just be really cognitive about your thinking um, and that feelings aren't valid, that feelings need to be separated. And a lot of that can also separate um, you from your from your body so um I didn't take care of my body very often and especially in college when I was dealing with coming out um I definitely didn't take care of my body um so that would probably be the most disconnected um aspect of being but in the last like two and a half years um being in seminary has really helped um having like a spiritual deep dive of discovery really helps um at least me being like a faith-centered person but um coming out as non-binary really transitioned that like I think sexuality is so huge and when you're taught to not like deal or cope or investigate that gender is really separated and in a patriarchal society we just kind of agree to our gender roles even when we're queer, even when we come out as non-binary, we're still enacting our gender roles um, because it's so deeply embedded. Um, so in the last like two years, I've been becoming more comfortable with saying I'm non-binary, becoming more comfortable with um, like my transness. And in my marriage, um, having like a different relationship with my body by like confronting um, gender role stereotypes, if that makes sense. That would be oh, like yeah. my my first answer (laughs) yeah that's a great first answer a plus thank you so much that's the end of the podcast no i'm kidding yes i did it it's been fun talking i'll see you later (laughs) oh wow wow so so tell me what it was like growing up non-binary like when did you get an idea in your mind that something felt different that something that you didn't fit into being uh in one of the quote girl or boy or like what did that look like for you as a kid yeah so I mean I would say right off the bat that literally like two years ago is when I really came to that notion but like I think that in my childhood if I had had language or access to language you know I will age myself in this podcast I am 32 (laughs) Um, there you go and so I'm boldly I like it I think that's a sexy 32 but there was no such thing as social media um when I was in middle school or high school or elementary school. And I grew up in a rural Southern town, um, you know, where you got married, you stayed in that place, you had babies. And like, that was your life story if you were a woman. Um, 
and I never really fit into that modality. Um, I was always like a very, what would have been dubbed at that point, like a tomboy, um, a t-shirts and jeans, like wearing Georgia boots. So for mm. those of you who aren't from the South, Georgia boots are like this like industrialized, like not hot leather boot that can endure all things but like that was like what people wore yeah practical (laughs) Um, yeah very practical um like literally i I was raised in a place where the cows peanuts cotton like two traffic lights um (laughs) not not a place where people talked about queerness or sexuality and if they did they talked about it as a complete abomination as we're familiar with that word um word so I just knew that that was wrong. Um, But I was always, like, super deep, like, loving, like, guy friendships and, like, super deep jealous if my best friend would go hang out with her boyfriend and not me. And, like, newsflash, Mm. I was definitely in love with my best friend. Um, (laughs) Like, we all are. Like, we all are in some part. Tell me about Um, it. But, like, internalized homophobia is is such a trip. And so, you know, it's kind of like a tapestry. And it's... We have a tapestry and then the world like nitpicks it and takes things out and we kind of have to rebuild and rethread the tapestry once we are in the process of coming out. And Mm. so it it really wasn't until I had developed a genuine foundation and sense of sexuality, um, gotten all of my second adolescence out and, you know, dealt with parental things that are always ongoing. My parents and I are always ongoing um, that I was like. Oh, gender. <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> I was uh, in the co- I was in a cohort with the Reformation Project, a leadership development cohort, and we were oh, wow. listening to um, a, a loving, wonderful trans human being give a talk, and I was in the back of the room, and they were saying their pronouns. This is the first time I was in like a room of like, geez, like twenty four queer people, um, queer Christian people in a physical space, not like virtual space. Um, and hearing people say like, oh, what are your pronouns? And no one had ever really done that to me before. Wow. And flash forward to this talk and I'm in the back of the room and I'm just like sobbing and I don't know why I'm sobbing. I don't understand what's going on. And <laughs> and I go home from that um, that like summit and I'm like, oh, like I have to like investigate what this means for me. Um, And so I did that in silence because internalized homophobia also, you know, is just like super deep. It's in gender as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And it took me like a year and I came out to like one of my really close friends and was like, I'm definitely non-binary. And then it took me like six or eight more months to be like publicly. okay, cool. This is it. This is who I am. Um, And that was an interesting like transition. Like that was uh, I always have to like pause if I'm ever going to talk about my wife I have to think like would my wife be cool with me talking about her <laughs> <laughs> I love um, that I think about that with my girlfriend sometimes I'm like wait am I was this okay <laughs> so I got you d- yeah I have to think if I'm going to tell her story for you because you know I believe that we shouldn't tell other people's stories for them but um we definitely had to have a lot of conversations about what that meant um because you know, she fell in love with me as a woman, and I was telling my wife, like, I don't identify that way anymore. Um, and so that was, like, loving, full of love, continued check-ins, like, 
obviously we're married now, so all yeah. things are cool. Um, but it's just a, it's a different um, navigation of queer life that I don't think um, we talk about a lot. We talk a lot about coming out. Um, I hope that we talk a lot more about the grief that comes with coming out. But coming out with your gender is like a whole different parallel experience, too. Hmm. Yeah, that that is very, very true. I have definitely had a lot of conversations about coming out, but I think I've only had like, I can probably count on one hand how many I've had about coming out gender-wise. So I'm really interested in that. So what I'm understanding is you came out as um, attracted to, or what did you come out first as before? <laughs> so yes. I'm trying to figure out what the language to use is. I'm like, I want to make sure I'm saying this right. <laughs> How did you identify first before looking into being non-binary? What did there that look like? There, there you go. There you we go. go. Um, okay. Like, oh my God. No, no offense to straight people, but I had a straight person one time who was like, oh, if you're non-binary now, does that mean you're attracted to both genders and I was like no that doesn't oh sexuality and gender are two different things homie. oh straight people <laughs> we love you and we need you to Gotta read some books <laughs> just, um, just a few books maybe just, maybe just like a five. few just like maybe a thousand um, <laughs> yeah maybe a thousand yeah so I identified as a lesbian and then I shifted that to like identifying as queer because I felt that was like broader for me to like explore and also I'm a very like like I named myself as a communal person so I thought that queer like better encompassed me into this larger community fabric and didn't put me in like silos that in queer community were so susceptible of doing because society has groomed us to be like that I'm sure you know potentially what I'm talking about um yes for sure so and then like uh like, I'm sexually attracted to only women, just for all who want to know. I'm um, very only attracted to my wife. I am monogamous. Um, also because that matters. And also, I love all of my friends who are poly and open relationships. Um, and then, you, you know, gender-wise, I identify as non-binary. Um, and I'm always, and I'm still, like, figuring that out. Um, I think that, uh, like, there's this bold thing about proclaiming what and who you are but also like labels um can be entrapment too Mm -hmm. um like yeah I need you to know these things and I want you to call my pronouns but I don't want you to come back like five months later if I decide I'm gender gender queer and be like but I thought you were (laughs) yeah (laughs) like our human self and our being in like the vastness of how God creates us. Like we're spending our entire lives like on a journey to figure out what that is and what feels good to us. And that can change. Um, Mm -hmm. And so can like what feels good to us within our gender and our sexuality and like just at the core root, like our humanness. Yeah. Wow. That makes so much sense. I love, I love how you talked about that because I feel like it leaves so much more room for freedom which is really, from my experience, like what queerness is to me is just freedom to explore and to question things and to not have to follow this list of guidelines or whatever the world seems to label people or put people as. And so I've always kind of struggled as well with labels. Like I came out originally as bisexual, but then recently I'm like, am I even bisexual? Because I think I just like women. But then I'm like, do I even need to call it anything? Yeah, and then like... 
Oh, I'm with you. I'm for you. Like, ugh, language and words are so weird, and <laughs> they're so weird. It's a, it's, a, it's a paradox. Like I, and depending on what generation you represent, um, like you can piss some older, like lesbian and gay, because a lot of older generation will not like vacillate to like queer. Like you can piss some people off. Like mm-hmm. I was having Chelsea and I have like. We totally want so bad. I'm going to put it out into the universe. We totally want an older queer couple to be friends with, you know, guide us, <laughs> guide us through the fog. Oh, and we, yes. were, <laughs> we were on um, like a, this is way before the pandemic. Um, this is like two years ago. And we were on a dinner date with an older couple who I know doesn't listen to podcasts. This is safe. Um, <laughs> and I told this person that I'd come out as non-binary and they were so mad. They were like, what are you doing? Like, why are you betraying us? Like, you're a lesbian. Like, that's all, what we are. Like, if you become this, then you're taking away. And, it, wow. and, and like, honestly, that's, like, for me, that projects as, like, an internalized homophobia and, like, you know, your last thread that you're holding on to, like, the way that the society tells you that we have to function. Um, and mm. so, yeah, I don't care. Like, if you tell me in the moment what you are, like, that's wonderful. Like, I care about what you tell me, but I I really look at people as human beings. And if they tell me a month later that that's fluctuated, then, like, great, let's celebrate that, too. Yeah. Oh, that's that's awesome. And that kind of just, like, hurts to hear what you were told by the, the older couple. My oh, goodness. Oh, Lord, honey. The things oh, I man. have been told, that was like <laughs> light. <laughs> oh. that, was, that was like real. No, 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 no. If we, were, if we did a whole podcast called Family Confessions, we'd oh. be here for a real long time. <laughs> oh my gosh, now I want to start that and you are the only guest. <laughs> Let's do it. Oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah, I, I think that um, the concept of having a an older queer couple kind of be the the guide would be so incredible just because just even just looking at like yeah even just looking at like media movies books like straight people are the center of pretty much in almost anything especially like growing up in church which I'm assuming you grew up in church right yeah, buddy. Okay. <laughs> yeah, buddy. From what I've read and everything, I'm assuming, but I wanted to make sure. Um, but just how they like give these such in depth like guidelines and I don't know, like all the things about what it means to be a man and a woman in a relationship, and the man is the head of the house. And I'm gonna make myself sick if I keep talking like this. Don't We're do it. Stop. Don't do it. Just stop. <laughs> okay, I'm done taking that out. Everyone, just throw that out of your minds that I just said that. <laughs> But all that to be said, it would be incredible to have just something different to look to that feels more safe and more familiar and more like showing that there are obviously more than one ways, more than one way to live. So that would be very cool. If you find that older queer couple, please let me know. (laughs) And if you're open to sharing, I would appreciate it. I guess we're like on our way to becoming that for some people. I don't know. That's true. We're not That's... old. We're both in our early 30s. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. We're trying. But anyway, yeah, so so I can imagine you talked a lot about uh, internalized homophobia. I have so many thoughts and questions and whatnot in that conversation because I just, I don't know, the concept of inner 
internalized homophobia is so sad because it's literally growing up, at least from my experience, it was like I knew I was attracted to women when I was probably like 12 around 11, 12, 13 years old. And I, because I grew up in church and my parents were super homophobic and that was just the norm was to be homophobic. Of course, I'm going to think that way too. And so then I myself know, it's like, it's just this huge tension of like, I am this, but I hate this. And so then you just kind of grow to hate yourself and want to separate from who you are. And it's just like, Oh my goodness, to not disconnect from your body wouldn't make sense, honestly, to survive that. What was your experience like with internalized homophobia growing up? And like, how did that affect your relationship with yourself and your body? LOL. LOL, <laughs> <laughs> good answer. Good um, answer. I, yeah, let me like check myself for a second. Um, I don't, so let me disclaimer this. Um, I don't think, this is definitely going to answer your question, but I think that I want to say this first. Okay. I don't think that sharing a story requires for us to share a really sad thing. And I don't think mm-hmm. all of our like stories have to be sad for them to be impactful. Mm-hmm. Um, but to answer this question, I do want to be like really blunt um, and like forthcoming. So listeners, know that when you're sharing your story... You don't have to have a sad portion that like climaxes for it to be validated. It's already validated because it's yours. Um, but to reflect on this, I would say that um, one of the many, 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 many reasons <laughs> um, that <laughs> How I many feel reasons? so many, um, so many <laughs> that I feel called into ministry is um, one of them is because um, I mean, God has saved my life so many times. And I know that we hear some evangelicals say that from a pulpit, but literally, <laughs> um, <laughs> like, I I tried to not be here in several different ways. Um, and I'm here because God said no. Um, I did so many ridiculous things to cry out for help, like, with the use of my body as a mechanism to cry out for help, whether that was, like, Drink like binge drinking every single day, um, accessing um, trigger. I'm going to say trigger warning because I'm going to discuss some things that involve drinking and drugs. So I'm going to say that right now. Um, mm-hmm. And then I'm going to be like five, four, three, two, one. <laughs> so using of like Xanax and certain things mixing with drinking, which I'd never done before. But I was like climaxing at the point where my parents had said, like, you can't do this. You can't be this way. And fighting this like core, like knowing of who I had been. So like when we're born into the world, we have these core knowings of who we are because they come from like generations before us. So whatever our parents were told about their belief systems, about their morals and ethics, like we are birthed out of the womb with that embedded in us. Just I know that's an image, but like literally I want you to think of it like that. And then we hear about it as a child. And we're developed into like this indoctrination of what our parents believed. And we trust our parents and we love our parents, especially if you're told an evangelical view to obey your parents, right? That's a familiar phrase for folks that have been raised in that style of church. And so when you come to this juncture of deep knowing, like deep spiritual knowing in the back of like your spine, like I am gay as 
F. <laughs> yeah. And everything I have ever been told in my life from the people who have fed me and the ways that I've been told to respect them says that I'm not, but I know I am, then something must be critically wrong with me, which is a lie. It's just a lie, 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 lie. I need you to hear that. A narrative that is not of us and does not belong to us. And so we may cry out with our bodies. So that's why, like, one of the many reasons that's why, like, so many queer people die. So many people mm -hmm. commit suicide. So many people um, abuse drugs, abuse alcohol. And this picture is painted of queer people as being like, all we do is club, which we can't look at that picture right now because we're in a pandemic but <laughs> like but that's like the the essence of queerness like we see people painting this picture of like you know predominantly gay men because you know patriarchy gay men uh. like partying and drinking and like that's who we are but the reality is is that we're all doing that activity potentially i know i'm blanketing a statement we're all doing that activity to numb something to deal mm. with something to cope with something um and for me, that was internalizing my true self um, for the homophobia that I had been prescribed my whole life. Wow. Yeah, that you hit that right on the nose. Uh, I love how you bring up the whole fact that like, well, first of all, I've never even really thought of it this way. And it's so true about how it looks like the queer community, like we go clubbing and drinking and gay bars and like all this stuff. But and I've recently been kind of re-examining my relationship with alcohol as well to just see how that really is a coping mechanism and how it's a way for us to escape ourselves. And it's so sad, but it makes so much sense when you think of like why we want to escape ourselves, like what messages we grew up believing, like how I guess homophobia taught us that our bodies are not a safe place to be because it taught us that they're wrong. So if our bodies aren't safe, how do we get outside of our bodies? And that's things like drinking and drugs or dissociating or pick any strategy you want. They all kind of do a similar thing. So that makes so much sense. Uh, do you do you feel like kind of growing up you used strategies like that a lot is what you're saying to kind of get outside of your body to avoid? Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Same, man. That's a hard road to go down. <laughs> it is. And it's a road that's, like, promoted. Yeah. Um, oh, my gosh. It's so normalized. Yeah. I mean, and, it, I, I, you know, we're talking through a queer lens, but that's promoted in, you know, culture across the board. Um, yeah. But for queer people, we have, like, this double layer of... um. Like, just total disembodiment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Will you define, for those listening who don't, I guess, just because I recently became familiar with language like embodiment and disembodiment, do you mind defining what those mean? LOL again. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Love the LOLs. Um, yeah. I think that uh, AM... I am not the authority on any of these things. Um, my wow. writing and my research in embodiment and disembodiment pertains to like grief um, within queer people, but I can explain what I think they mean um, okay. for me. And then you all can decide if that makes sense for you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, disembodiment for me um, means that your personhood 
is, and when I say personhood, I guess I should do that too. When I say personhood, I'm talking about everything that makes you who you are. The things that you may not even know yet, those are involved in your personhood, your queerness, um, your... Uh, your sexuality, your gender, your race, your class, your likes, your dislikes, your urges, your desire, everything that culminates in your humanness is your personhood. And disembodiment means that your personhood is fractured. It is strewn across the floor. Um, I like to talk about trauma a lot. So if something traumatic happens to you, um, if you're envisioning for a second, you can close your eyes if you want to. Um, and there's like a massive circuit board, right? And there's all these wires and they're colored and they go in the right place. And then somebody comes through and just pulls them all over, puts them in the wrong poles, like tears them apart, cuts the wires. That's disembodiment. Mm. Dis total or partial disconnection from who you are, where you are, and how you feel. And, and okay. that, would, that would be how I would describe that. And embodiment would be the absolute opposite of that. Um, and, like, also embodiment, like, isn't um, a place you go to. I think it's, like, a state of being that you continue to journey with and through. Um, I don't think that there's, like, this mountainscape that you get on top of your and you're like I'm totally embodied for life and now none of you can mess with me <laughs> like that's that's not real oh no it's not <laughs> I mean I, like Dang it. I, it's it's like a practice I feel like it's a whether you want to call it a spiritual practice or a meditative practice or a practice of like just really paying attention to um your like core institutions and so I am very, you know, you know that I'm in seminary, so I'm a theological nerd. Um, I'm very Trinitarian, so I think about embodiment in, in a way of body, mind, and spirit. Mm. So an, an attunement, it's like a constant um, attunement to those. Like, I'm trying to think, like, if you were in kindergarten and you had, like, a super cool music teacher who had one of those, like, little tongs that they would, like, hit and you could hear the, the pitch... I don't know. This might be just me because I was raised in a musical family. <laughs> <laughs> I might be following. And, I'll tend to follow. And you like ding it and it like totally tuned and you're like, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. And sometimes you like ding it and it's not and you have to like play with it to get the tune just right. Like that's what you're doing with your with your mind, body and spirit. You're constantly mm. trying to remain attuned and reattune because you're always in process of becoming at least i think that you are you get to decide what you think you are yeah wow that that was really very oops sorry i just bumped my whole mic that's <laughs> gonna be fun um that was very very well said i love how you talk about how embodiment isn't like a destination or like the goal we're just gonna reach this and now we're good and no one can touch us now because it's kind of like how people talk about like healing isn't a destination, but it's yeah. like this continuous yeah. process. Embodying just sounds like another way to talk about it. And it makes so much sense because like I was in uh, treatment about a year ago for an eating disorder and it felt like the whole entire treatment just kind of became about my relationship with my body and which, spoiler alert, is why this podcast kind of 
came from, but it was a lot about just being in my body and how the goal for, quote, healing is embodiment. And, like, you get there through experiencing yourself as one whole being, not this fragmented person, which sounds a lot like the way you describe disembodiment. And so... It's just, it's really cool to look at life through like that lens of, oh, I am one whole being and the goal, I guess, or my my hope for every day is that I can be as present and in my body as possible, which is impossible to be that 24-7, like we were saying, but it's And a like really- having like forgiveness for that, like, yeah. like if it can't happen this day and you're in a shit place, like- Name you're in a shit place in your diary, and tomorrow is a new day. Like, yeah, self care is such a buzzword these days, and also like a proponent of harm, um, in the way that it's like capitalistically like promoted. Um, and so that's why you know that's why I'm saying that embodiment isn't like a destination. You've reached a peak and you've done it. Like, it's just a continual loving process with yourself whatever that makes up to be for you. Like I'm describing it in this like mind, body and spirit way. You might describe it in a different way, but those Mm -hmm. are the things that like I want to check in with and see, you know, are they in harmony or is something off? Like I'm, can I recommend a book? Oh, please do. (laughs) Oh, I'm going to go read it right now. If you do. I'm reading this book right now because I don't, I'm not in school right now. I'm on break, so I get to read things. Like, I would like to read all things, but this is a self-help book. Um, And it's called Getting to Center, Pathways to Finding Yourself Within the Great Unknown. And it's by this queer artist named Marley Grace. And Marley is M-A-R-L-E-E, just so everyone knows. Um, But she makes this really great recommendation um, that I'm adapting into, like, these three tiers that I, that I've talked about for myself um, about like making a list of things that bring you back to center. And so I've been writing a list down that bring me back to center for these like three things. Like what brings me back to center for spiritual? What brings me back to center for body? What brings me back to center for mind? And like, how do they like communicate with each other? Which has been actually a very hard thing to do. Um, Sounds like it. But it's, like, helpful because if something feels off, like, I can go, like, resource my list and be like, oh, well, maybe I need to take a bike ride or maybe I need to, like, play my video games because I definitely play video games. It's an Ooh. inside alert. Same. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, I'm a nerd. Um, or I need to, like, phone a friend. Like, I, so I have these, like, things that I can reach to instead of, like, spinning out into the abyss. Mm. I like that. I like that a lot. Would you, I guess you kind of did. I was just about to ask if you wanted to share what some of those things to re, I guess, center yourself are. Is that the right language for it? Yeah, that's how she describes it. And also like, you know, we all adapt things into our own being. Um, Yeah. I, I just touched a hanger. You can probably hear it. (laughs) Great (laughs) hanger. It's probably necessary to touch. (laughs) Um, I, yeah. Um, like, actually, no, I'll share this. So I do this thing that I have never understood why I do it. I feel like I'm sharing an intimate detail. Oh, <laughs> um, we're bonding. I, I, yeah, I'm bonding with you and everyone yes. who listens. Um, everyone on the internet. No. <laughs> I ha- we have this long mirror from Ikea. Um, and I 
I like to look at myself in the mirror. I'm, it's not narcissistic. It has a purpose. I've rooted the purpose. Mm-hmm. I, it's like a way for me to like, um, remind myself that like I'm beautiful and like I look good. Like, in a really loving way. So, like, I'll look in the mirror and I'll, like, play with my hair and I'll, like, look at my tattoos and, like, I'll just be like, all right, you look great today. And then I'll go do mm-hmm. the day. But it's, it's like, not... It, it sounds narcissistic. I feel like it's coming no. off that way. But it's, like, a loving thing. Because yeah. before, I used to have, like, super long hair. I had no tattoos. Um, I dressed, like probably more feminine and now I'm very like androgynous and like I have very short hair I have a full sleeve (laughs) I have blonde hair I wear one dangly earring like George Michael and I will not let it go (laughs) yes (laughs) love it (laughs) and I and I like have started to really cultivate like who I am through like this external representation um which takes like bravery um and so, like, every day I, like, look in the mirror and, like, it's just, like, my way of, like, looking at myself and being, like, I see you. And and when I don't do that, like, I, I feel, I feel off. Mm. No, I love that so much. That's actually something I recently read about in, which book was it? I think it was, I'm super excited, I'm interviewing her next week, uh, Hilary McBride's book. Uh, Mother's Daughters and Body Image. I'm fairly sure it was from that book, but something talking about the... Oh, no, it wasn't. It was a meditation I was doing. Um, Something talking about just the the power of the practice of looking in the mirror at yourself for an extended period of time and what that that really does for your relationship with yourself and your body. And it is so... It's just so cool to me because I spent so many years like avoiding mirrors at all costs because of this kind of fear of who I was and just not wanting to know just this total avoidance of like, I don't want to even have a body. I don't want to know about my body. It felt like just too hard and too much. And so lately I've begun trying really hard to just spending more time, I guess, doing what you doing what you said you were doing as far as like just looking at yourself and finding things that you like and admiring lines on my face that like tell my stories instead of things like be ashamed of or like liking the way my hair looks and being okay with the fact that I like the way my hair looks because I think there's also this narrative especially for women of like trying not to be vain or trying not to be narcissistic like you're saying and sometimes from my experience that's like made it difficult to let myself be confident or be uh, proud of myself or love myself or think wow I really like my legs because I feel like we're supposed to say negative things about our legs or our arms or our stomachs when that just feels like the norm of how people talk about bodies is just ripping them to shreds and then what that does is when someone wants to compliment themselves or really admire something about themselves, which is an incredible gift to be able to do. It just looks arrogant, but there's a big difference between loving your body and just being a narcissistic asshole. <laughs> yeah, but that, but like case in point, like, um, like we're still working through that. Like, yeah. I know it's not narcissistic to say that, but like 
the like narratives that I've been fed are going to interrupt in my anxiousness and be like, that might sound narcissistic. And so I say it out loud. <laughs> yeah. When I know it doesn't. And also, it doesn't matter. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, this is my own mirror. Get out of here. Yes. that That is really very, very cool. Jumping back to somewhat of the beginning of our interview, and I think it was after my first question to you, and you, you talked about how you didn't really start to feel connected to your body till recently. When you got married, is that what you were saying? Yeah, like in the last two years, like I'd say, like marriage has also helped a lot in that. Oh, wait, when did you when did you get married again? <laughs> it was recently, right? Well, I yeah, it, no, it feels like it was forever, but it was only just a year. We just celebrated um, our year anniversary on the thirty first. Oh, congratulations! That is so exciting. Oh my goodness. Okay, so you said within the past kind of few years. Did you notice, like, a shift when it was happening when you were starting to feel more connected? Or is that more so something you're looking back on now and connecting the dots? Oh, wow. This is like a therapy session I didn't know I signed up for. <laughs> oh, no. That'll be $150. Too much. That's a bad way. Um, oh, my gosh. I think it's like Anne, like that Anne. Like Anne Booth. And then, yeah. what is the phrase? Uh, and. Both, 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 and both, both and, and yeah, both and. We I knew we'd figure it out. We did it. <laughs> Put our brains together. We got this. Yeah, like both and. Like I think um, seminary has, like the first year of seminary, I was just like raging angry, like I was coming up against all of these emotions about um, like being. Now, I wasn't kicked out of my church, but I left my church because I knew that I couldn't walk discernment there because they're not affirming. Um, mm. And like going into seminary without a home church and I'm in a Presbyterian seminary and no offense to Presbyterians, but you all have this interesting like cradle to track situation where people are like born into Presbyterianism and then they're like, I'm going to be a pastor. This is a total like inside world that I'm telling you about. <laughs> and so as a queer person in my seminary, I was like, one of two in my class. My seminary is open and affirming. Do you know that? Mm. Um, but I felt like very like isolated and alone and I didn't have a home church. I didn't have a community um, and that in that way. And I was just like super, super, super angry at, at God for that situation. Um, and I feel like because of the work I had to do, to say I was angry, to work through that anger, to start naming my story more honestly, like that helped me like reconnect, like um, re-embody. Um, and even though that might be spiritual, I think that flows into the body as well. So like yeah. having a more like positive relationship with my own self and not being like, you know, looking in the mirror and being like, you stupid, stupid person, you're never going to have, like, we all, like, I do that. Like, I can't, <laughs> like, I used to be a person who would look in the mirror and tell myself all the things that were wrong with me oh. and all the things that were, like, unlovable and, like, if you had just done this or this or this. Um, and that, like, really shifted when I was, like, purging that, like, rage. Yeah. Um, and so entering... Entering seminary helped. Going through that, um, really discerning what what the call with was with like being a pastor, and also being in like a next level intimate relationship with someone, um, and discerning like marriage. Um, 
and having to have like a lot of come to Jesus conversations about um, like specific patterns that I behaved in and like needing them to like shift and change. So like mar- I'm saying marriage because like truly like my partner has been a mirror and a beacon of like, no, no, no. <laughs> like you're a wonderful, beautiful, loving human being. Like I can't, you know, you need to, just, we need to work on this. Like mm-hmm. I need you to source out therapy. I need you to think about these things. Um, and so those together really, yeah, transition that relationship. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So when you talk about kind of the relationship you have with yourself in regards to your marriage, you're kind of saying that uh, your wife, in a way, like holds up a mirror for you that helps see, I guess, yourself in a more compassionate way. Yeah. Um, okay. And I'm, you know, I'm going to say this onto this podcast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I hope that my wife can also look at herself that same way, too. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a gift to be able to do that for a person. And yeah. a gift that we have anybody who does that for us. And I do have like other loving community that does, but there's just a total difference in an in intimate partnership with someone and them doing that for you. Mm. You trust yeah. them because you've like given everything to them. Oh yeah. Absolutely. I do you talk at all um about like attachment theory? Um, you are the third person to ask me about this. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, That's a sign. I've, do, do I? Uh, like I don't know. My, like, <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> I have read it. Um, I have read it and I think about it when I'm writing other things. Um, I don't fully address it first and foremost. Um, but it is definitely, I think about, in my own personal like work but maybe I should <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh no <laughs> oh my goodness because people keep asking and I'm like uh no I don't specifically talk about attachment theory but also attachment theory and like family dynamics are like in everything we do so anything yeah. I say could be in relationship to what you have read recently or what you've heard yeah um yeah yeah, no, that uh, that makes sense. I just recently started looking into it. Like, I think when I first started going to the therapist I have now, like a couple of years ago. Um, but she she's a EMDR therapist. But she yes, oh, EMDR. Yes. Oh my god, I'm in the middle of it right now, and it's kicking my ass. And mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. all I have to say about that. <laughs> but love EMDR. Um, but she talks a lot about how her therapeutic approach functions primarily out of um, attachment work. And so, like, she told me at the very beginning of working together that she thought um, a big, big part of my healing was going to come from the relationship that I had with her. And that confused me because I was like, what do you mean the relationship I have with you? And then more recently, she told me that, like, as she said that, she also believes that a big part of my healing is going to come from the relationship I have with my girlfriend, Kaylee. And when she talks more in depth about it, it makes so much sense because so many of our like wounds and, and traumas and stuff today that are still affecting us came from our attachment figures growing up, like mom, dad, brother, sister, any kind of caregiver type person. And so 
I think you were talking about this earlier in the podcast of like how you grow up and, and you trust your parents and you believe them and you believe like what they say is true. And so in that, we kind of learn about what love is. And like, we don't like look for what love is. We take what they say or what they show us and be like, that is what love is. And so a lot of the time, because parents aren't perfect or brothers and sisters aren't perfect and like all those obvious things, uh, things are going to be communicated wrong to us. And those kind of develop into our attachment theories. And so um, I guess I'm just bringing this up because the way you talk about your wife, you said, is her name Chelsea? Okay, the way you talk about your relationship with Chelsea reminds me a lot of that, I guess, like in my relationship with Kaylee of like, we're kind of relearning the way attachment works. We're like rewiring our brains from like old learnings of like having like avoidant attachment style of like just any kind of attachment that is showing you unhealthy things as far as like you are loved if you can prove this or if you oh, look like yeah. this. And oh, now yeah. we're learning. Yeah. <laughs> so now it's like we're learning love through the lens of like even how we talk about God of like unconditional love. And like we're learning that in relationship because it's kind of proving those things wrong. I'm kind of on a soapbox here, but it's because I'm super into attachment theory. <laughs> no, it's it's valid. And like I... Um, love in general, like, I, oh, I can't tell you how many times, like, we'll get, like, my, my friend Aaron Green, um, and I, through Bible query, through the Bible beer query thing that we do on Fridays on my Instagram, we do a, a live show, we get so many questions about love, um, and, like, what is it? Like, base question, what is it? Mm. A, that is so tragically sad. B, I relate. Um, and see, like, I think in our second adolescence, like, we are defining it. And it's da- it's dangerous work to define it on, on our own without, mm-hmm. like, sources of community and, like, knowing. And usually we get our heartbreak, like, times a thousand um, mm-hmm. based off of, like, risky behavior that we might be pursuing to, like, see, like, oh, well, is this love? Like, like we don't know. Like, if we've been told that this version of love is is what it is, and this is con- this is unconditional love, then it becomes un like conditional love. Excuse me, conditional love. Then we're very confused about like what is love and what isn't love, and then we're also having to define what that is within the framework of a relationship, and then we may or may not really know what a relationship is supposed to look like, um, depending on how conditioned we are and like gender roles and how that's supposed to behave um like Mm -hmm. for example like um in the first year of our marriage um there was an emotional intelligence i i pride myself on having deep emotional intelligence but emotional intelligence also you know sprawls far and wide um and i was behaving like my dad in our marriage like i was modeling how he treated my mom which was not like wrong but it was a very like male female role like my Mm. dad brought home money but didn't do anything in the house didn't make things equitable and I was like carrying that role out um and so there was this like recalibration of like what is love in this queer relationship in this marriage that makes things equitable and fair and you know not unbalanced um so, like, I just want to say, like, 
as queer people, we, God, we have so much A plus work to do and like figuring that out. And also like, we have the capability to liberate ourselves from systems that others like are stuck in too. Mm. Yeah. I'm happy you brought up that whole thing on gender roles. Cause you, you briefly mentioned that at the beginning of the, the podcast and I was wanting to ask more about it. Cause that's, that's something I've been kind of interested in talking about and thinking about recently too, which is something that's so exciting and beautiful about, like we mentioned earlier, just being queer. It gives freedom to kind of break the rules that should never have really been in place and define our own everything. And so that's very, very cool. Very, very cool. Um, I've been, it's so funny because I took all these notes that we talked about before and we have gone in every <laughs> single direction and not any of the, and that's beautiful because you are just, you have so much good to share and I love it. But before, before anything, I really want to talk to you about uh, being a, a death doula. That's what it's called, right? Yes. yes. Okay. So for those listening, uh, I don't know if anyone listening is familiar with a death doula or what that means. I am not until now, and I'm super interested because of so many reasons. But will you will you tell us a little bit about what that's like, how you got into that, what that looks like, I guess? That's probably like a big, broad question, but <laughs> <laughs> do your worst. <laughs> do my worst. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, let me... Take a beat. Yeah, um, take all the beats. And let me back up and say that I um, am not a trained death doula. I have created um, research and writing around offering a new form of pastoral care for the queer community through um, friendships and... Um, modeling how death doulas care for those who are in the dying process and for family who are witnessing that dying process. So I will tell you that I am um, the creator and um, facilitator of what is called a living death doula. Um, but I will tell you what a death doula is to the best of my abilities. And I can say more about the, the first thing, but the doula movement has been here forever. Um, right now, the death doula movement is becoming more like known. Um, but, you know, we've had spiritual guides and leaders from the indigenous community to, uh, you know, various other forms of countries that have been practicing some form of, um, doula care and you know we have midwives who help people birth their babies in natural environments that that can also be known as birth doulas um and a death doula is kind of the opposite end of the life spectrum helping someone gently and kindly walk through the dying process um and promote empowerment and like continued healing while that's happening um and allowing and hoping for that person to stay intact while that's happening. Um, and that can look as simple as telling that person that they're doing a great job 
that their body is taking care of them, um, that the people around them are, are, they're not doing anything wrong. They're taking care of their family the best they can, playing that person's favorite music, singing with them, holding their hand, um, advocating for um, their end-of-life wishes. Um, a doula is like a, a liminal space holder, uh, a transition holder, and someone who walks with that person through. Um, mm. That would be like my best way um, to give you um, a brief like synopsis of something that is so much more expansive than I even understand. Yeah. Um, but I say that I'm a living death doula because um, I wrote a series of um, research and writing around what happens to queer people um, when their core um, institutions are fractured. So remember when we talked about like personhood mm-hmm. when when that happens, um, which I think you like wrote down a giant quote about that. <laughs> yes, is it cool if I read that giant quote? <laughs> It takes a few breaths for me to read it, but I'm I'm super done. Is that cool? Yeah, you can read it. Okay, so um, Rachel wrote, Gender and sexual nonconforming or queer people of faith experience living death when, after being told that they are wonderfully and perfectly made, that action is contradicted by the actions of exclusion from service in a church, exclusion and abandonment by family and community, thus creating a core fracture to queer people of faith's institutions. Anyway, carry on with what you were saying, but that is the quote that they you were talking nailed about. It. <laughs> yes, nailed it. No more needs. <laughs> so what I'm arguing and presenting and sharing um, is that as queer people, we have these death experiences that happen in our living um, that get lodged. And, you know, if you'll recall, come back to when I was talking about embodiment, they get lodged in our body, they get lodged in our mind, and they get lodged in our spirit. And they make it next to impossible for us to move through our grief um, because grief kind of captures all the our living death narratives, like the prescribed narratives that we've been given, you know, from our church, from our family, from society, um, and operates in this like cyclical rhythm where we disassociate from who we are, where we minimize who we are where we hold those themes that we've been given, like we're not worthy enough. God doesn't really love us. We're not really gay. Or we like spiritually ration ourselves, meaning that we think that we deserve the breadcrumbs and that we're not actually allowed to sit at the table. Um, And so when we allow, like when living death is creating this disembodiment, um, we can't fully live into our whole selves. We're kind of severed. Um, and so for me, the reason why I created this model, which I'll tell you about, is because um, the biblical case for inclusion, um, which to break it down, it's like what the Bible says that it's actually fully, fully affirming and inclusive for queer people. Like the case for why it's actually totes okay that you're gay and God loves you, which mm-hmm. is true, valid and wonderful work. Um, I'm saying that that by itself is not enough to help us dislodge these like living death narratives inside of us to be like fully discovered um, and to fully embody who we are. Mm-hmm. And 
the reason being, because I know that you said um, that you're super interested in terminology and talking about embodiment and disembodiment. So I yes. want to help, help you all kind of understand why that happens. So you know how I mentioned earlier that if you grew up evangelical, I was raised Southern Baptist, um, you were kind of told to separate the notion of emotion, right? Did you ever experience that in your I upbringing? Th- I think so, yes. That sounds very familiar. Like, you give it all up to God, it's going to get taken care of, you don't say too much about it because you're whining, or ah. like yes. that kind of premise. Let go, let God, that whole thing. Yeah, that thing. Yeah. <laughs> so cool. Lovely. So cool, um, man. Tattoo it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So hold so so that okay that's a thing, and um, we have two sides to our brain. This is some psycho- some psychology. Jesus, psychology. <laughs> wow, <laughs> this is psychology, but it's real like lower level. You all can get this. We have two sides to our brain that function. Okay, mm-hmm. so when we're traumatized, so for queer people, when we're told no. When we're fed these themes, when we are disassociating, we're kind of frozen. We're like suspended in animation, right? And we're kind of spinning, spinning, spinning in like this hyper intellectual state. So like we're only living in the left side of our brain, which I'm like touching right now. I really wish that you could all see how what I'm doing. (laughs) Another use your imagination moment. I know. Use your imagination. I'm like touching, you know, with my pointer finger to my temple. I'm going to tell you about it. But like your left side of your brain is like the side of the brain that cognitively tries to make sense of something. Mm. So the the biblical case by itself is just a cognitive band-aid. And it has an integrated all the trauma that's happened or all the emotions that have taken place. And at some places it can re-trigger you because of the ways those passages have been used against you. Mm. So our right side of our brain is like the super dope side of the brain that us Enneagram 4 is like, like a lot. Um, the right side of our brain is called the felt sense. So the right side of our brain is where a person finds grounding in where they are, who they are, and how they feel. And if you've been raised in this like religious upbringing to completely separate the felt sense from the, the like cognitive state, then it is really, really hard for you to make sense of what's happening in your world because you can't fully engage the emotional side of it. Hmm. I know that, it's very, it's very fascinating. <laughs> yeah, that's super fascinating. That sound. Have you read the Body Keeps the Score? Probably. I have. I have. I okay, have read um, that. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of that stuff. That's very, very super, fascinating. Super great book. Yeah. So, the other, the other tidbit and and sidebar that you can just like munch on, ruminate on. Um, Start munching. Here we go. <laughs> so, when we experience a loss. Um, we try to reestablish ourselves through something that we know, like a core truth. Uh-huh. So for queer people, the loss that we're experiencing, our core truth is about us. So that logic doesn't work for us. We are constantly saying, well, I can't go back to the core truth because I'm the problem. Mm. So our grief, like I said, holds us in this like living death pattern where we're cognitively trying to figure out why we don't make sense, but we have no way to get through the narratives 
why are we disassociating? Why are we minimizing? Where are these persistent themes coming from? Why am I spiritually rationing myself? Like our emotional status has been just like completely severed. Mm. So what I mean by calling myself a living death doula is that I work with people to create a possibility for embodiment by allowing queer people to kind of work through all these narratives to coax out like the sound of their genuine self. You know how we always have like these billions of voices in our heads telling us what to do, who we are. Mm -hmm. The model that I have developed is a place where you get to sit with me. um, And hopefully this will be made into a book and made into many other things that can be used and tell your narrative honestly, without expectation. Like I've, you know, the person I sat with for my research, I told them, I'm, I'm not going to save you. You're, you're not going to be saved at the end of this. I'm not promising you anything. What I am giving you is a brave space to tell your truth. And we're going to work through it together. And we're going to label out exactly where these things are happening in you so that you can see it. And then the hope is that by doing that, that person has more awareness about what's happening in their body, mind, and spirit. And can hopefully take that to their community and to therapy to help make progress um, in embodying who they are and loving who they are. And so that's why I call myself uh, a living death doula. Wow, that is sounds like such a sacred position and place to be. And just like, I mean, just going back to what you're saying about a death, just a, a regular, a regular death doula. <laughs> <laughs> um, but just like the ability to look back with that person to like, celebrate their life in a whole different way and just I guess the ability of like looking at death in a different lens as well that's not like fear but more so like this is the next part of the human experience that's beautiful in its own way but now talking about like being a living death doula that sounds so cool because it it almost gives you like a second chance like a second third fourth however many chances you need to to kind of like re-come alive again after so many years of just being tormented. That's yeah. so special. And that makes a lot of sense what you're saying about, um, you said like the, so the left side of the brain that holds the emotional responses, right? I might butcher this, but I'm going to try and reframe what you're saying. <laughs> Am I <Go> right? <laughs> you can do it. Okay. So the left side, that's like where the emotional responses are. Yeah. The left side of the brain, yes, that's correct. Oh, okay, I'm pointing, I'm pointing to my left temple now. Yep. Can you picture yeah. that? Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> Everybody, then, imagination time. <laughs> Love a theme song for that. <laughs> um, so then when something like logical happens in, because the right side is more like logical. Yeah, like cognitive, like. Uh, let okay. me make sense of this. Like when you're trying to put the square peg into the square like opening that's your cognitive side okay that makes sense so like that's working but then um the emotional side of it there's like a tension there because like logically or cognitively like you know like okay again I might be butchering this but like for example (laughs) you are loved and accepted as a queer person there's nothing wrong with you but then that is hard for your left side because of how many times the narrative of that being not true has been ingrained in your brain 
So it's like not possible to fully believe that because the left side can't get there yet. Yeah, it's a, a total um, severing of that. Okay. Um, and kind of being stuck in this like cognitive status. Um, so you're just dis- you're disembodied. Yeah. And the okay. narratives are like continuing the disembodiment. Um, and so as queer people of faith, I feel like we need more than just like the biblical case to help us process um, mm. and regain like the truth we we've known our whole lives from the people who have told us it's not true. Okay. Wow. I am proud of myself. You did it. (laughs) Yes, I did do it. I deserve pats on the back all around. Um, That's super cool. You're so smart. I hope people tell you that. They do. And I'm like, (laughs) you go, Glenn Coco. Yes. (laughs) You're like, what should I say back? That works out perfect. Um, Yeah, that's really incredible. I... You gave one book recommendation earlier. Do you have other, like, if people want to read further into these topics, people as in myself, because definitely going to be purchasing <laughs> books after this. Um, um, what do you suggest? Yeah, I'll say that um, the main text for my research in this that we just talked about uh, is a book called Trauma Stewardship. Um, it is great. Um, it is just so good. And mm. you should just buckle in for the journey it will help you immensely i feel um it's written for the perspective of people who do care work um but it helps you work through like your trauma points and then ways to um bring awareness to them and ways to get through them so Mm -hmm. that is definitely one um and then uh dr robin henderson espinoza writes a book called activist theology which writes a lot about storytelling and becoming and I absolutely adore Dr. Robin. So I'll name that one as well. Okay. Awesome. I just wrote those down and we'll put all of that in the show notes below for anyone who's interested as am I. We'll just start a little book club here. Yay. Um, yay. <laughs> Bring but me in. We'll yes. zoom together. <laughs> do it. Do it. Oh, speaking of that, do you want to, I know we mentioned a couple times um, your Bible query. Do you want to let people know how to find that, get involved in that and what that is again? Totally. Totally. Um, totally. Um, Bible Query is a virtual collective that is offering um, one-on-one and group pastoral care calls, workshops, and a cohort that we run quarterly um, for queer people who are looking to do just what we talked about, embody their full selves, work through their narratives. Um, We also do this really dope fun thing where Aaron Green and I host a Bible beer query, which, yes... I drink IPAs every Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on my (laughs) IG, which is Queer in Faith. And you can come hang out with us. You can ask us absolutely anything under the sun. We love ridiculous, hard, medium, softball questions. And we love hanging out with the queer community. So, Mm -hmm. And you can find my work and writing on QueerInFaith.com. If you're interested in the cohort that's coming up in March for Bible Query, then you just go to BibleQuery.com. Okay, awesome. And while you're at it, do you want to throw your social media handles out there if anyone wants oh, to follow you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> all of my social media handles are Queer in Faith. And Bible Query has an Instagram that 
is like not announced, but like I'll announce it to you. It's just Bible <laughs> Query. Um, and the other thing I will tell you about is that um, we are hard work. We are at hard work here as creatives forming braver spaces for queer communities. So if you want to throw coins at me for that, yeah. you can at Queer and Faith on Venmo. And yes. those are all the things. I love it. I love it. Um, I have one more question. Well, yeah. Okay. One more question <laughs> to ask you before we before we wrap up. Is that cool with you? Yeah, it is. Okay. Okay. So I've been working on this question all day, and I am going to try it out. Are you ready? Here goes nothing. Okay. Would you rather have... Any superpower of your choice, but <laughs> every time you use that superpower, you turn someone's hair in your life a different color, like really oh, wow. crazy colors. And it's, you have no control over that. You don't know whose hair is going to change colors, what color is going to be. So it's like, say your superpower you wanted to be was like flying. Every time you flew, like your best friend's sister's hair now all of a sudden is purple. But then you fly again tomorrow, and now your wife's cousin's brother, son, something like that, will turn green. Do you follow? Wow, what a long list of relational people. Yeah. Yes, I follow. Anyone in your life. So would you rather that or every Saturday evening around 8 p.m., you host a town hall meeting? I think I've used half of this in a different would you rather question, but everyone just give me a break on that. <laughs> would you rather do that or host a town hall meeting with all of the hedgehogs in the world to discuss hedgehog politics? They are all very passionate and very not really like the best at controlling their emotions. Do you watch Parks and Rec? I know. That's what I'm thinking about. I was like, I would choose the hedgehog thing so I could be Leslie Nope. <laughs> yes. Okay. That was what I was going to say. Like picture like a Leslie Nope town hall meeting, but everyone's a hedgehog. Done. I'm Leslie. Yes. Okay. So no superpowers <laughs> with hair colors. Oh my goodness. Rachel, it has been an absolute pleasure and so much fun talking to you today. Gosh. So much fun. Yeah. I feel Let's... like I've known you, but I, I haven't, but now I do. <laughs> We're friends now. I hope we yeah. like virtually hang out soon. Like I'm oh, looking me forward too. to this. Absolutely. We're gonna virtually hang out. I'm gonna jump on one of your um your queer queer Bible beer query beeries. Yeah, Bible beer query. <laughs> that's a queer beer. <laughs> wow. That's yeah, a mouthful. So many branding opportunities. Yeah. Come, yes. come Friday. Ask your question. Like Yes. I'm gonna come hang out and then hopefully We'll hang out in other virtual forms. And when the pandemic decides to just stop being a pandemic, if oh and when God. that ever happens, maybe yeah. I'll get the honor of seeing you in the flesh. Totally. That would be really fun. I'll, but If you say a thing, like the foreign me is going to be like, okay, it's happening, right? Yeah, <laughs> okay, it's happening. <laughs> I love it. Well, Rachel, thank you so much again for your time and your storytelling and for all of the opportunities for us to use our imaginations. It's been an absolute <laughs> blast. Absolutely. It was, it's, ugh. I can't wait for our continued friendship. And I loved this conversation. Thanks for honoring and digging deep and asking great questions. Yeah, man, absolutely. I will see you virtually and talk to you soon, okay? Sounds awesome. 
All right, bye.